welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and as always, I am here with Rachel Madel. How's it going, Rachel? It is going so good. I, we're hey, on the same time zone. I was going to say, I was going to say, what's it like in L.A.? But you're not in L.A. right now. You're in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Is that right? That is so true. I am. And I am really excited to be here. I So I'm from Pennsylvania, actually. I'm actually sitting in the house that I grew up in recording this podcast. And I'm pumped to be here because I am actually speaking at Pennsylvania Speech and Hearing Association's conference today. So I made the trip and then I'm going to speak and then I'm going to just spend some time with my family and my friends. How awesome is that? What's, uh, what's the topic? I bet you can guess. What do you think? Is it maybe uh, AAC and autism? How'd you know? <laughs> How'd you know, Chris? Yes. AAC and autism specifically, um, it's called Beyond Requesting. How can we get kids beyond just saying what they want and what they need. It's really, really important. And I'm really passionate about it. We've talked a lot about that on the podcast, um, but it's just so important. And I feel like, especially with children with autism, we get stuck um, because I think children with autism get stuck. And I think that, you know, there's a variety of reasons why they get stuck. One of, one of which is the social language impairment. Um, you know, a lot of times kids with autism are very isolated and they, they prefer it that way, right? They like stimming and they like doing isolated activities. Um, you know, so I think that's part of it. But I also think that oftentimes clinicians just don't have a clear vision as to what kinds of language they can target. It's really easy to target requesting because, it's like, oh, we'll do this during snack time. Oh, he really wants the iPad or he really wants that, you know, bus or whatever it is that a child's really interested in. It's easy to get them to ask for it. And oftentimes that's where we start with communication, right? Um, but we don't want to get stuck there. And I'm just a big fan of providing lots of ideas for clinicians and parents to get them out of thinking through the lens of just like requesting. Well, I love that you're going here and you're doing this during Autism Awareness Month, but there's a push, and I'm curious if you've heard about this, the, the push to change the name from Autism Awareness Month to Autism Acceptance Month. The idea being that, right, that, that, that everyone's aware of autism. We don't need to raise awareness of it. What we need to raise is the acceptance of it. Yeah. Well, I actually have been seeing Autism Acceptance Month and I've been trying to like correct myself because I feel like we've been saying Autism Awareness Month for so long, right? Um, but yes, I completely agree. Everybody knows autism. Now, they might not know as much about kind of the nuances, right? But I even think that's changing because of shows on television. And, you know, I feel like everybody kind of knows someone that has a child with autism or knows an adult with autism or has someone in their family that has autism. So I agree. I think that we need to really promote the acceptance piece and not necessarily the awareness piece. I always think about the awareness all these awareness causes, right? It's like, do we just want to build awareness or do we want to actually like build acceptance or do something else, right? I'm like, let's be more proactive than just building awareness. Yep. There's all these weeks or months or that, and it's like, yeah, okay, people know about this stuff now that we, we have to move on and do the next thing. I mean, part of maybe the, the subtext of our conversation this morning is about that term uh, acceptance. You know, uh, let me, let me ask you this growing up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, you were very close to the Dutch Amish community. Did you often see, you know, people in buggies and, and have any correspondence with them? Oh, absolutely. There's literally a grocery store down the street and it has a, a buggy parking lot. It's not a parking lot per se, but it's like a barn. It's like a half barn that buggies pull into. 
So yes, absolutely. I grew up surrounded by the Amish. You would be driving and you'd have to pass a buggy, especially on Saturdays. They're very active. Um, Monday through Friday, Amish, the Amish are working really hard on their farms. And then Saturday is their big day their big day out. Um, so there's tons of buggies on Saturdays and then Sunday they typically go to church. So there's not as much, but yeah, absolutely. I definitely had a lot of exposure to the Amish. Yeah. And there's this whole idea that, um, that we are accepting of their culture, right? That they have, they, they are, have a different culture than the one that I and, and am used to. Um, but it doesn't make it any more or less. It's just different. Right. And I think that is maybe what, one of the themes of this particular episode that we're recording, because, uh, later on in the episode, I have an interview with Charlie Danger, and Charlie Danger is an occupational therapist that lives in the UK, but he got to spend some time in Qatar doing some therapy with AAC, and he's, he, 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 it was really eye-opening for him about the, the different cultural norms over there and how they're different than they are or what, where he was, where he grew up, and, and I feel like that's something that I always need to continuously strive and grow on, is, is accepting and understanding uh, other people's cultures. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the the phrase that I've been seeing a lot this month for Autism Acceptance Month is different, not less, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of the the same thing goes when you're thinking, um, you know, through the lens of other cultures, especially if, you know, I grew up in a small town. People in my hometown, they don't even really venture outside of, you know, the tri-state area, let alone go to, you know, somewhere abroad. Um, And so, you know, we are in a lot of ways in this part of the country, very sheltered from other cultures. I grew up in a high school where it was like, everybody looked like me, talked like me, was like me for the most part. And so I do think it's, it's something that is um, something you can train yourself, right? I went to college and I'll never forget. It was like, I was so, I went to Temple University, which is in Philadelphia and um, very diverse university. And I remember like the first week that I went there, I remember walking down, I forget what it was called, but like kind of the main thoroughfare through the campus. And I was just like, I feel like I was just like in shell shock almost. I was looking at all these, you know, different races and I was just like, oh my gosh, I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it other than I was like, wow, I was so intrigued. Like we had one family that was Jewish in my school that I know of. So I knew nothing about, you know, Judaism and all the kind of culture that surrounds that. Right. I was like, what's a bat mitzvah, (laughs) you know? And so it was like, it was a learning process for me, but I think the key is I was always open. I was always open to hearing differing perspectives and cognizant of my own, my own shortcomings in a lot of ways, just not being exposed to that. And I think the best thing was just being really genuine and open with people. Like, you know, I came from a small town. I don't really know, you know, I don't know what a bat mitzvah is. Um, and people are generally really accepting when you kind of approach it with curiosity. And so that was something that I started doing. And, um, then, you know, kind of thinking about like the trajectory of my life, then going and traveling abroad and I've been to all over the world. And now I'm just like really excited. Like I thrive on learning about other cultures. That's something that I really enjoy doing. And I'm really curious about how their people live. Um, and so I think just going into situations where you're open, it's easy to like judge things that are foreign, right? Like, I don't know, that's not the way I do it. So like that, that must be wrong or, you know, I don't like that. And I think that it, especially when we're thinking through the lens of speech language pathology, we come in contact oftentimes with a lot of students from lots of different, you know, cultural backgrounds. And we try to do a one size fits all approach. And it's just, that's not the way we need to look at it. 
about it. Um, actually, Temple was really great where I went to grad school. I had a cultural diversity course, um, and we talked all about speech and language and how different cultures, um, you know, they learn language actually in different ways, um, which I was like, what? Um, one of the books that we read, I can't remember what it was, but it was contrasting um, a small, like rural town in the South, like an urban area. It was, it was a lot of different um, areas that they contrasted and um, just really different perspectives, which is interesting. Yeah. So we've just been mentioning a lot about cultural diversity, but tying it back to autism, then you have this concept of neurodiversity. And like you said, it's not less, it's just different different, right? And so what if we reframed uh, those the, the term autism to be thinking about the this particular brain, the autistic brain, is just different than a neurotypical brain? And maybe the same thing you'd say about someone who has a dyslexic brain, right? Uh, and when you think of it that way, well, now you're just, uh, you're just thinking of it as differences as opposed to uh, more or less, right? And that really helps with that acceptance piece. It's like, well, oh, okay, they have a different mind than I have, but it's no more or less. I think that's a way to think of it, just being neurodiverse. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's strengths-based focus, right? Let's not focus on the things that are, you know, maybe unusual or challenging. Um, and this is something we need to do in our practice with all of the students that we work with is really focusing on the strengths. I mean, the whole concept of neurodiversity is, you know, these amazing, brilliant brains, right? These, you know, autistic brains are brilliant. And, you know, yes, there's some challenges with socialization and sometimes language and all of these things. But the flip side of that is, you know, children and who eventually become adults, they're very valuable to society in a lot of ways um, because they have these amazing brains that like, I mean, I'm sure you know, Chris, like working with children with autism, they amaze me. Um, I have so many stories to share. Um, one I'll share just because it's funny because I was just thinking about him yesterday. I was on a plane. Um, I used to work with a student and he knew every single time I went on a flight, um, he was really into like transportation and and so he could at any given time, and this is like probably like a seven-year-old. He's not that old. He could tell me what flight I, what date the flight was on, what airline I took, the flight number, the time it departed, and the time it arrived for any flight that I've ever, and I, I tend to travel a lot. And so, you know, part of it, like, it was just so funny. I would test him all the time. I'd be like, when did I go to Panama? <laughs> and he'd be like, you know, April 15th, departing from, you know, LAX, arriving in Panama City. I mean, it was just so crazy. And so it's just like, that's one example of the, the capacity of children with autism. And so I think it's something to be celebrated. And that's why I'm really excited about this month because it, it's a celebration, right? It's, it's oftentimes, and especially, I feel like parents get this. It's like, oh my gosh, you have a child with autism. I'm so sorry. Um, and so I really think we need to start reframing that. Um, and I do understand there's challenges when you have a child with autism. I'm not trying to, to say that there isn't, but I think that like anything else, let's focus on the positive. And we can say that across everything, right? Like it's always better to try to shift your brain to go to the positive and really focus on the strengths. Well, you know, you say challenges and uh, absolutely, right? I think some of those challenges come with the idea that the, our culture is not set up to be as accepting of people who have a neurodiverse background. So one way to attack those challenges is by raising the acceptance level of how we design our, our entire culture and how we think of and reframe things and the language we use. So uh, I think there's multiple ways to attack those challenges. Yeah. 
Uh, speaking of acceptance and openness, I want to uh, say something to our listeners, Rachel, and that is I want to apologize to everybody because, uh, and, and I, the reason I say openness is because I'm asking them to be open with us and uh, and be uh, be accepting of, of my mistakes. No one is more frustrated than me about my recording and my issues with my computer over the last couple episodes. Um, my audio keeps cutting out, and our audio team, uh, Luke and Michaela, do a fantastic job stitching it back together and we don't even know what's happening because I just think it's all working and then when we find out it's have all these dropouts I just want to thank Michaela and Rachel I want to thank our audience for persevering and please know that we are working on it I am working on it to try and have uh, redundant systems here so that uh, we can make sure that the audio is as, as good as it can be absolutely I understand and that's the thing with technology right like sometimes it works and sometimes it's it's quirky but yeah I just feel so thankful and grateful to have such a wonderful team behind us Chris you know obviously I love talking with you every week and like geeking out on AAC you know there's a lot of people behind the scenes that really help to make this podcast so to that I am forever grateful and I'm really excited because I just feel it's a, it's a really we have really strong bonds with the people that work you know with us to make this podcast um, including you listeners. We're really excited that you guys listen and um, we're just happy that we're getting the word out about you know a topic that clearly Chris and I are very passionate about. Yes. Thank you everybody for, for sticking with me as we work through these technical issues. And thank you audio engineering team for making it as awesome as it is. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited. So uh, if you guys haven't already, please do leave us a review on iTunes. It's how people can find the podcast. Um, I'm really excited to share this review. So this is from, I don't know what the name is. It says J-V-E-S-L-P. So J-V-E-S-L-P. Um, I was lucky to meet Chris this week at a conference incorporating AT and AAC in the schools. I'm an avid and voracious consumer of podcasts for entertainment. As a school-based SLP today, this podcast is an easy and entertaining way to discuss one of the most difficult aspects of my clinical practice. Chris and Rachel have a great rapport. They communicate so clearly and with such ease, it's like I'm eavesdropping on a couple of colleagues. I appreciate the way they identify the best ideas and support efforts of other professionals and each other. Compliments and positivity are as important as the direct therapeutic suggestions and relevant topic discussion. Chris and his ability to speak clearly and with passion about the work he does makes listening a joy. I always hope I am competent in the use and implementation of AAC. On days that I feel less than perfect, I plan on putting on one of these podcasts. The stories that podcasters share about personal experience, as well as the interviewees that are inspiring and thought-provoking, are certain to lift my spirit. The conversation will remind me that AAC will always be a fluid means of communication amongst people with unique communication needs, changing and adapting to human needs. Thanks for keeping this conversation going, Chris. I look forward to more from you and Rachel. Yay! I wonder who that was. I wonder who that was that I met at one of those conferences. That's great. Because like you said, Rachel, um, I was just at recently at a conference earlier this week and a number of people stopped me and said, thank you for doing the podcast and keep it up and we're listening and we're sharing. And so it's uh, it's it's so reaffirming to know. And, and, and really, <laughs> the reason we do it is because those sorts of uh, comments, we know that it's making a difference out there. So thank you. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So Rachel, let's jump into the interview here with Charlie Danger, who has the best name ever, Charlie Danger from the UK. I mean, wait till you hear his voice. You totally picture James Bond, and that's exactly what he's like. Ah, uh, man, I wish I had a name as cool as Charlie Danger. I couldn't agree more. Amazing name and an amazing interview. So I'm really excited for our listeners to hear it. So without further ado, here's Charlie Danger. 
Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Welcome to Talking With Tech. Here I am. This is Chris Bouguet with Charlie Danger. How are you doing, Charlie? Hi, Chris. Yeah, I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. So, Charlie, you and I got to meet each other down at in Florida at ATIA. Uh, and is that where you live? Do you live in Florida? Uh, no, I live in Oxford uh, in the United Kingdom. Oh, my goodness. All right. So, tell us a little about who you are and what you do. Okay. So, I'm a, a senior AAC consultant at the ACE Centre in just outside Oxford in the United Kingdom. Uh, do you want to know a little bit about the ACE Centre? Yeah, question? please. Please let us know what that is. Okay. So, we're a national charity. We've got quite a broad remit uh, in assistive technology and AAC. Um, the ACE Centre in the south part is quite long established and our patron was Stephen Hawking um, some years ago. Um, we are national now, we've got, we've got another northern office um, and although we do assistive technology assessments in schools with children, our main work at the moment is AAC assessments for all uh, ages. So for adults with uh, acquired disabilities like motor neuron disease, people who have had road traffic collisions, we also work with children with cerebral palsy and basically the whole range of anybody who has difficulties uh, with speech. Um, now I'm an occupational therapist so people assume my role is to excel at access, you know, switches, eye gaze, getting things in the right position. But actually, we're really transdisciplinary, and there are a lot of speech and language therapists I work with who pretty much know as much about access as, as I do. So as a, t as a team, we always go out in groups, and uh, yeah, we get a lot done here, yeah. Charlie, you mentioned assessment, but do you also help with the implementation process? Um, yes, yeah, so we, what we normally do is we support local teams. So most of our work for AAC is funded through the National Health Service. And we're one, well, actually we're two of 15 specialized hubs in the UK. And so if people have got a speech difficulty, they'll go and see their local speech and language therapy service. If they've got a very complex speech difficulty, so they also have a, a physical disability or uh, something similar, then the local service will refer them over to us. So we see the what's the top 10 complex cases. So instead of doing the implementation directly, we support the local service to implement that AAC. So one of the things that when we met down at ATIA and we, we got chatting is that I recognize that we have some common folks that we know, right? That I know that you have worked with uh, Judy Schoonover. She's a colleague of mine. A former colleague of mine is Sally Norton Dar. And then Beth Poss and I do presentations all, all the time together. And you've met these people before. Can you tell me about that experience? Where, where did you meet them and what was going on? Yeah, so I was very fortunate. I worked in uh, Qatar, which is a tiny Middle Eastern country, for four and a half years. And um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Qatar, they get a lot of consultants from around the world to come in to help develop their services. And I met Beth and uh, Sally and Kirk Benke and Mike Marotta and Joy Zabala and a whole load of other people came to visit. 
and um, it was really nice meeting them. And also I got a chance to give some of them a tour of the city and um, share knowledge with them. So that's how I got to meet all of those people originally. Gotcha. And what brought you there? Because you were there already. Like they came, but you were already there. So tell me about that like. You, you, how did you end up working in Qatar? There was, well, there's an organization there called MADA, which was pretty much established and grown by uh, a former colleague of mine called David Baines. And basically, I received an email in 2013 saying, you know, would I like to come and work there as an assistive technology specialist? And uh, I thought, I thought, why not? You know, I'd never been to Qatar before. I'd never been to the Middle East. I don't think at that point I'd ever been out of Europe. But yeah, why not? Give it a go. I could always come back. So what was that like? What were you doing there? What was that whole experience like? I mean, that's kind of a unique experience. Not many people get to say they're a, an assistive technology specialist in a Middle Eastern country from Europe. Well, first of all, it's a place that has amazing food, like fantastic, fantastic food. You wouldn't believe it. When they try and do Western food, it's not so good. But the, uh, but the local food, the Arab food, the Syrian food is fantastic. So that's great. People are really welcoming and peculiar. I'll, I'll talk about how peculiar they are in a bit, um, but in a good way. And there's a lot of bizarre experiences going out to the desert and, um, and meeting people and camping out and all sorts of strange things. Uh, but while I was there, I also had to do quite a bit of work. Um, and the work, so yes, yeah, so it's four and a half years. Uh, it's tough. It's quite tough to build relationships with colleagues who are culturally very different to you and speak a different language. And also, it's quite tough to do assessments and implement assistive technology uh, in schools and at homes for people with, you know, communication problems and other disabilities. It's, it's quite tough because of the cultural difference. In what way? What are some of the cultural differences? So the, the assessment parts itself uh, were always fairly smooth, but I guess my role that they expected me to be was different. So they expected me to be a doctor with a tie, sitting behind a desk, prescribing assistive technology. No need for the implementation part, but as a sort of a creative and slightly uh, a buoyant occupational therapist, I, I'm not really a doctor. I don't sit behind desks. I, I don't wear ties. So when I first got there, I would roll up my sleeves, sit on the floor and play games and try and introduce assistive technology into those games. But parents quite often, basically the rapport wasn't there. They were often shocked by this. And uh, so that was one of, the, one of the big things. And then the other thing was really some more sort of uh, deeper emotional things was, how about it when you meet a family who feel that their child deserves to have that disability? because the cause of the disability might not be down to some random mutation or due to uh, a lack of oxygen during birth, but it might be down to the will of somebody, you know, the will of a God, for example. And so you can end up with some quite emotional situations where parents and families kind of feel that the child doesn't necessarily need this technology to help them. One of the other big emotional things to deal with is this idea of independence. So in the United States, uh, we know you guys are very big into independence. You have a whole day dedicated to it. Uh, in the UK, we're pretty into independence as well. And I think in the United Nations uh, Charter for uh, People with Disabilities, there's references to assistive technology. And throughout the whole thing, there's references to independence. But in Qatar and I dare say the other Islamic states in the, in the region, independence is not a goal. It's not necessarily a, a thing that people aspire to. What people aspire to is to be part of the family and to play their role in the family. And so therefore, if there's somebody in the family who helps somebody communicate, providing an AAC device to promote independence, that stops that person who's helping the person communicate from having a role. So independence doesn't come up very high in a lot of people's lists. 
So therefore, we kind of felt that we were sometimes doing assessments, providing the equipment, but it, they were just paying lip service because they didn't really want it. That is a completely different perspective than I think a lot of people would have here in the culture in the United States, because like you said, it is, we, are, we are heavy into independence, but the idea that when someone becomes independent and that's stealing someone else's role of being a provider, that is something I think most people would think of that as foreign to us, pardon the pun, um, but it is completely a, a legitimate uh, way of thinking about how you interact with your family members and the people that you care about. So I've got, a, I've got another example, if you don't mind me uh, quickly suggesting this or saying this as well, is that we, I was involved in a powered mobility assessment service for a while, and obviously the, the health service there was set up uh, through consultation with the UK and Germany and Canada and the USA, where again, independence was central to the, to the purpose of the clinical setting. And so we assumed that powered mobility that would provide independence to the user would be something that every family wanted. But again, when we first met each member of the family, there would be somebody whose job it was in that role or have a role where they push that individual. And so then what you're doing is you're kind of breaking the family a bit by providing that independence to the individual. And so we often found that we'd do the assessment, we would pay for the chair and all the seating and everything, but it would never be used. And the child or young adult or adult would end up back in their original chair because the family don't really want that independence. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing they wouldn't communicate that to you up front. You know, that is something you learned, it would be probably rude to, to I'm guessing here, because I don't really know, but that my presumption would be, oh, I'm not going to tell you that I don't want this stuff, but as we're going through it, I'm already deciding in my mind, I'm never going to use this because it's going to break apart my family. But I'm not going to say that to you and prevent you from doing that work because I don't want to be rude and I want to respect the work that you're doing. Absolutely. And don't forget their image of me is as a doctor expert that prescribes things. You know, that rapport and getting eliciting honest responses is, again, a, a difficult thing, not just because of the cultural differences. It's actually difficult because of the language differences as well. Mm -hmm. So what are some strategies you used to overcome this cultural uh, difference? It was shocking, right? I mean, it would be to me. Yeah. So obviously, I went through a culture shock uh, when I was there without really necessarily knowing about it at first. Um, but it's about awareness, of course. So first of all, I became aware of what was happening with my culture shock. You know, I read about it so that as I noticed my behaviors and my emotions, I could kind of put it into context. Uh, the other thing I did immediately is I didn't live within an expat bubble. Uh, actually, my friends were from Qatar. They were Qataris or from India or Egypt or many other countries in their region. So I got to go out and eat every night with uh, people from very different cultures, and I got to ask them honest questions about things. You know, wh why did this happen at work today? What can I do to change and get better outcomes? So there's a lot, a lot of that. The other thing I noticed, uh, one of the other strategies I used, so for example, I was talking about my role as, uh, as them thinking that I'm a doctor. So I kind of met them halfway. What I do is they'd, they'd come to me and I'd be in a sort of an office. I wouldn't go to the extent of wearing a tie, but I'd be sitting behind a desk and we'd start off with quite a serious conversation. And then when I felt that they trusted me, I'd roll up my sleeves, sit on the floor, get loads of toys out. So it was, it was kind of meeting them, building up the trust within their own expectations before bridging it on to the next level, I guess. That makes a lot of sense, especially to me, that part about spending your time with people who are in the culture, because I could immediately see people cocooning themselves in a, in a I'm just going to stay in my flat or my apartment. I'm not going to go out. I'm just going to FaceTime my friends back home. By immersing yourself in the culture, that's the best way to maybe learn it and learn about it. 
It was definitely the, be the best thing I did. So, I mean, I met a lot of British uh, expats, especially there's a lot of British people out there who really just had friendships and relationships with other British people. And when I spoke to them about all the bizarre experience that, that I'd had in the desert and in the souks and going to the houses of um, the local population, they sort of looked at me a bit puzzled. You know, why would you want to do that? But for me, it was like going to a, a, you know, a festival where you never knew what was around the next corner. It was a fantastic experience. So not only did it help me adapt to the culture and provide hopefully a better service, but it also was a lot of fun. Yeah, that, I love what you just said there, how much fun it was, because uh, you'll have those memories forever, right? I mean, uh, how many, like, like I said, how many people actually get to have that kind of experience, and why shy away from it? Lean into it. Yeah, I just love that. Plus, like you said, it helped you do your job to be a more effective provider, because then what are you doing? What are you actually working towards if you're not actually trying to help the family? So let me ask, in a situation where someone thinks of a communication device as stealing someone else's role as a provider, how do you implement a communication device in a way that you're, you're helping someone learn language and helping them better communicate, but also not having them feel like it's stealing someone's role? Yes, it's a good, good question. So uh, one thing that worked well, which we discovered kind of towards the end, because, you know, it's quite a slow process, but, um, you know, the paper-based or low-tech solutions are good because that meant that the individual could kind of speak for themselves a lot more without somebody just speaking entirely on their behalf, but it needed somebody to, you know, translate from the paper-based sources. So, you know, you'd have a, you'd have a, a pod book or some other symbol-based uh, chart and they would be obviously selecting things and then the person would, would translate, you know how that works. So that really helped because then what you weren't looking for is you weren't saying the word independence, you were saying, well, what is this child's role in the family? Mm. Their role now as your son or daughter or brother or sister, you know, they're now able to fulfill that role while still relying on somebody else in the family. So kind of the paper-based stuff worked quite well. The high-tech stuff, um, when we talk about cultures and the way people uh, behave, um, we're talking about stereotypes. So not everybody abandoned the high-tech AAC, but to be honest, we accepted the fact that most people did. There was not a lot of high-tech AAC use. I should say that's also effect that was also affected strongly by the lack of Arabic uh, high-tech AAC, which has improved a bit since then. But um, yeah, we had quite a lot of <laughs> pandemic with the high-tech stuff. So uh, having done this for, you were there four years, did you say? Yeah, four and a half years, yeah. And have you worked in other places or did when, when that time was up, did you just go back to the UK? So yeah, I came back to the UK after that and started working here at Ace Centre. So let me ask you, you have such an amazing experience here and such a unique experience. What are some of the um, considerations you would bring back, you would share with others that you would you'd want other people to know about being more culturally informed? Like what are maybe some better practices that we could all learn from that we could take away from that experience? Okay, so yeah, so I get asked the question, how do I learn the different cultural norms? How do I know what's acceptable and what's not acceptable for different cultures? So this is the question I get asked a lot. So for example, we found that uh, shared book reading, which is something that, you know, I'm sure both of us are big fans of, you know, there's evidence to say that shared book reading is, is very beneficial. But if you try and convince somebody to do shared book reading for whom it isn't part of their cultural norm, you can get quite a thorny response. And so we found that with quite a lot of people, shared book reading. And then another example that I've given is, if somebody stands very close to you, 
for our culture, we might feel a bit upset and intimidated, but for other cultures, actually, it's a sign of respect. And if somebody doesn't stand very close to you, you might actually feel a bit put out that they're not listening to you. So when I go through some examples and talk about the experience, people often say, well, how do I learn all these different cultural norms? You know, if I've got an Egyptian person, what should I know for them? If I've got somebody from Syria or somebody from Australia, somebody from Texas, you know, what do I know that's the normal thing to do? And so the way that I found out, and I think this works pretty well, is you need to learn about yourself. So I got to do that through that culture shock. But if you learn, why do I feel anxious when somebody is standing really close to me? Once you understand the reason why you feel anxious, you can understand, one, how to control those emotions. You can think, hang on, they're standing next to me because it's a different culture. They're not threatening me. And the other thing you can, you can do from that is understand how your cultural norms might affect somebody else. So you can analyze your, your emotions when you respond to their culture. And then when you do something, you can think, well, how is it going to affect them? We're always going to make mistakes. You don't know who likes book, shared book reading and who doesn't. But if you talk about shared book reading and somebody looks puzzled, it might not just be because they haven't heard of it and they should be doing it straight away. It might be because they haven't heard of it and actually it's not part of their role. It's not something that they see that they should be doing. So it's about being open-minded and um, thinking about, uh, yeah, about the emotion and the different cultural levels. There was a, a book that uh, Beth and I, Beth Poss and I presented on this topic at ATIA. And there was a book by Zaretta Hammond about cultural responsiveness. And the, one of the great things about that book is it has a tree in it. Okay, so I'm going to describe the tree. So the tree has leaves, which represent the least emotional, but most uh, apparent uh, cultural elements. So these are the things you can see from 100 miles away. Well, not that close, you know, 100 yards away. Uh, they might be things like language. They might be things like dress sense, music, games. And so that makes up almost all of the visible culture. And uh, that stuff's pretty easy to replicate. You know, we can use symbols like the Global Symbols Project. We can use symbols of people wearing different dress um, instead of the symbols from uh, uh, that we have of people uh, wearing <laughs> the dress. We can use symbols of people wearing different dress. We can take symbols of two boys playing together instead of a boy and girl playing together because, again, you wouldn't get symbols of boys and girls playing together in some cultures. Um, so all of those leaf-type things, which is what we call a shallow culture, we can adapt pretty easily. And that does make things much easier. But the emotional side of that's not too high. Once you get to the trunk of the tree, those sorts of things are like how honest professionals are with each other. Uh, aspects of fairness in society. And they're things that it's much harder to adapt to. So those are things where you have to, make, you have to accept that people are different. You have to listen to them, you have to respect, and you just have to keep within your remit of your work and give them an option and see, you know, see what they'll take. And at the bottom, the roots of the tree, where the real emotion is, that's where things like independence is. And that's where, you know, why does my child have a disability? Is it because of a medical condition or is it because of the will of God? Those are the things which can cause huge emotional disparity in assessments and when you're trying to implement but those things, again, you, you have to accommodate and, you know, take in your stride as you're, as you're working with people from all sorts of different cultures. Well, you had mentioned, you said the words open mind. So having an idea that, um, and that your culture isn't better and having respect for the other cultures, I would imagine respecting those roots and understanding that, that they exist and that, that you're, just because you were raised a certain way doesn't mean that that's the right way or that because you're living in a certain culture that that's the right way. Does that sound like an aspect of it? Yeah, absolutely. It's very easy to go over to the Middle East from Western Europe and, th you know, 
have a look at a calendar and think, well, it seems to be like they're 60 years behind in healthcare, let's say. But they're not 60 years behind or 30 years behind. It's just a different path. It's a different route. And people live very happy lives. And, you know, who are we to say that we are the advanced people and that they are behind? Actually, they're very advanced in a lot of their healthcare. Yeah, so it's just, yeah, it's just understanding those differences. And, you know, Chris, it's not, it's not easy. It certainly isn't easy at all. And even on my last day, you know, I could have done an assessment with somebody and still been a bit shocked and a bit emotionally uh, disturbed by the situation that was happening or by what people said. But I learned to understand it. And I was mindful of it. And, uh, you know, I could sort of begin to take it in my stride. Mm-hmm. I think so. A, a spin on this might be that uh, people listening to this podcast might be thinking, well, okay, but Chris and Charlie, I'm not going to the Middle East. I'm not going to be practicing over there. And I'm not going to a different country uh, to practice. I'm working in Arkansas. You know, I'm working in Virginia. I'm working in, uh, I, I don't know, someplace that does not have, I'm working in a, my country uh, that I grew up in, you know. But I feel like we're moving towards a more global community and that there is very likely that within my lifetime that many of the speech therapists that that are currently working, occupational therapists, people working in healthcare, will be experiencing people who have come from different countries and that have different cultural backgrounds. So this idea of cultural awareness and respect for different cultures is something that I think needs to become more prevalent and more in in the forefront of people's minds. Uh, What are your thoughts? Yeah, we need to be ready. I mean, it's a bit like the old adage about um, ramps and wheelchairs in schools. Um, you know, schools are often saying things like, well, we don't need uh, a ramp outside because we don't have any students who use wheelchairs. But of course, you, you won't have any students who use wheelchairs unless you put a ramp outside. So it's kind of the same thing. Unless we are ready for people uh, who come from all sorts of different uh, cultural backgrounds, Um, Or even those people who don't come from different cultural backgrounds. It's good to be open-minded and aware about emotions because people surprise us all the time. You know, um, it's also within our own culture, there's there's differences as we we are all used to when we're working with older adults and with younger people, especially working in assistive technology. You know, we accommodate the differences that a typical older adult with less experience of, uh, of technology might have compared to somebody in their 20s, for example. We do accommodate that. We don't assume all the time that there is going to be that difference, but we look out for it. You know, we're ready for that. But I do think certainly, I'm not too sure about the demographics of the United States, but certainly in Europe and the UK, we have, you know, we're very fortunate to have a mix of people from all over the world here. And so the next assessment you go to could be somebody maybe has a very different cultural expectation to to yourself and to what you're there to do. So, you know, I'm, I'm always ready to uh, sit behind a desk if it's, if it's required to, you know, pretend I'm a doctor for five minutes before I, um, before I get all occupational therapy again. That's fantastic. All right, Charlie, a question I like to ask all the people that I get to interview is what's driving your learning right now? What are you curious about? What, you work in AAC. What's floating your boat right now? Oh, do you know what? So at ATIA, I think the last person I saw was Karen Kangas. So um, she did a presentation on not 90, 90, 90, you know, the position, 90 degrees, 90 degrees, 90 degrees. And I thought I'd go in and because... You know, Wait a second, Charlie. So a lot of people that listen to this are speech therapists and they won't know what you mean by 90, 90, 90. And they might not know who Carol Kangas is. Can you give us a, a little bit of her occupational therapy background and what 90, 90, 90 means? Okay, so she is, uh, is she an occupational therapist or a physiotherapist? 
I thought she was, well, we have to look that up, but I thought she was, that up. she could be, an so she, um, so basically she knows a lot about seating and also switch access and loads of other things. I've never met her before, um, but she did a, she did a presentation on, yeah, not just 90, 90, 90. So the idea is when you're sitting on a, on a seat, if you have your back right upright and your feet just below your knees, there's a 90 degree angle between your, in your knees, there's a 90 degree angle in your hips, you've got your head up. So that's the 90, 90, 90 angle. And I think there's some idea that that's how children with um, cerebral palsy and other um, movement disorders should be seated. And if you get them in that position, then that's brilliant. And if you can't, then you should kind of strap them down into that position or buy a really expensive wheelchair. So that's kind of the idea. But it's an old idea. And, you know, all the occupational therapists, physiotherapists and other people working in the field know that there's a lot of the 1990 thing is doesn't really work. So I was expecting, <laughs> I was expecting um, to just kind of go through that again, you know, but actually she didn't. She, one, she didn't have any slides, which was baffling. <laughs> Maybe she had two, but she stood in front of everybody and she said, you know, everything you know about seating, you take for granted, you know, in a nice way. It was sort of nice. Um, everything you know about seating, you take for granted. And uh, you've got to, um, you know, push way beyond the boundaries of, of what you're thinking of is, as, uh, you know, the expectations and the norms for seating. And then she went through some case studies where we saw these children who were, you know, not very well positioned. But instead of sort of strapping them down more, she kind of let them go. You know, she had them perching on the edges of of chairs and they were functional and they were chatting. She had all of these ideas about the importance of movement for concentration and communication. Um, she was talking about how the seating affects the vestibular system and the tactile system. It was fantastically interesting. And so uh, as soon as I got back one, I, is there a book? No, there's no book. Then I spoke to my occupational therapy colleagues and friends uh, and they were all a bit suspicious about it. You know, they were asking questions like, well, what happens if the child falls on the floor? That was a bit of a shock to me. And now every time I go out and I see these children, I just think, should I just take them out of their wheelchair and see what happens? So I don't. I'm not a seating specialist, but they have to be well seated to use AAC and AT. So that is driving me crazy at the moment. I think about that a lot. Yeah. That is fascinating. So I was just recently asked by our superintendent. So I work in a school district with 90 schools and our super, we have one superintendent for those 90 schools. And I got pegged to be on a committee to look at flexible seating, just how that's working in a general ed classroom, not, not even with regard to special education or students with disabilities, but just the idea that many teachers are saying, you know, we don't have to have these rows anymore. We can have beanbag chairs. And what if we designed our environment more like a, a cafe, you know, whether you could sit down on a couch or you could also sit down on this wicker chair or heck, you could sit on the floor or you could sit in a very, you know, like you said, 90, 90, 90 position if you want, that's available too. Uh, but what if we just made more flexible seating options? And so we got to go and look at different classrooms and what we kept seeing over and over again, which I asked them specifically to, to, um, to look for, was look at all the different options because a lot of these options are options that occupational therapists have been suggesting for years. And in fact, it, it came true. As we walked into different classrooms, there were kids, just kids in general education that had vestibular discs, you know, with the little pillows that you put on the chair. Sure, I know you know what a vestibular disc is, but for people who might not know, little pillows that you put on a chair, like these puffy um, uh, inflatable discs, and you, then kids could wobble back. People can't see me, but I'm wobbling back and forth in my chair, right? And it's like, well, how do you build in more movement, more light, and more air into your environment? Well, 
occupational therapists have been doing this for a while now. So uh, let's lean on them for support as we move forward in talking about flexible design in all of our classrooms. Absolutely. People often ask me, what's the best position? And I always say the best position is the next position because people have to keep moving and be dynamic. If we were trapped in a chair all the time, we would just fall asleep. You know, imagine just having all of those cushions around you. You know, it just makes you go to sleep. It's a bit like car seats. Car seats make people feel a bit drowsy because of the because they're so comfy and they cover so much of your body. So uh, yeah. So however, she she really got me thinking more about it and how I should do something about it. And uh, that's that's what I've been thinking about a lot recently. Yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, Charlie, any final thoughts? How do people get a hold of you if they wanted to learn more? Uh, okay, so well, I'm, I'm on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at uh, DangerOT. So you can message me on there or you can look at my tweets. I try and tweet once a day at least if I can. Um, and then if people are interested in the work of the ACE Centre in the United Kingdom where I'm working, our website address is acecentre.org.uk. Our Twitter handle, I think, is at acecentre. And uh, for those of you in the UK who might be listening, we have a free phone number as well. If you just want to call up and chat and ask any questions about AAC or AT, we've got a, a very good reputation and a lot of great colleagues here who know a lot about those subjects who'll be willing to help you guys. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. And we'll have uh, those links in our show notes. And so, Charlie, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us about cultural awareness and your experiences over in the Middle East and to talk about seating and positioning. That's fantastic, too. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Chris Bouguet with Talking With Tech, and we'll talk to you next time. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.